Welcome back to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Matt Feld will be joining us on Zoom today. On today's pod, we have the coach of the Wake Forest team that went into this College World Series last year, ranked number one. It's Tom Walter. Last year's Demon Deacons finished the 2023 season with program records and regular season wins with 45, as well as overall wins with 40, 54. This season's team made the program's third College World Series appearance, and it's first since winning the program's first national championship in 1955. Coach Walter, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. We appreciate all you guys do for our game. Well, I I mentioned that you headed into last year's College World Series as the number one ranked team in the uh, country and that you set an overall wins record with 54. So I would think it's probably a little bit of a mixed mixed emotions coming into this offseason, the fall season at Wake Forest. Obviously, you were at the top of the 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 hill last year going into the college world series but you know didn't didn't finish with the national championship what are kind of the emotions heading into the i guess into the winter now that we're in late fall yeah we're excited about this season so i think the number one emotion is just excitement we want to get back out there and have another magical season last year was such a fun run for this ball club and we had such a great group of guys and we lost guys in the draft, of course, lost guys to graduation, as you would expect on a, on a good team. And this fall, the just kind of building our, our new team culture has been the, been the focus. It's, a, it's an exciting time of year to do that when you're bringing in new players. And part of the reason, I, I guess some people are probably wondering, why are we having the Wake Forest coach on New England Baseball Journal's podcast? But you do a lot of recruiting in the Northeast. And obviously, you have a lot of ACC competition up here with Boston College. What is it like? What is it like recruiting in the Northeast versus some other areas of the country? And I know now it's become a little bit more national where a lot of these guys from New England are playing in tournaments in Georgia and Florida and some of the states closer to you. Yeah, we we love recruiting in New England for, for a lot of different reasons. And if you look at our team last year, I mean, one of our three like, pitchers in the rotation was a was a New England guy from Mass, our, our DH, our first baseman, all New England guys. So and and then our first base our, our backup first baseman who played in Omaha was also a kind of an NAB guy as well. So we've got a great track record of of getting good players out of there. And 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 there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they get a chance to play ACC baseball at a southern school, so they get the, a chance to go south and get into better weather. So we're an attractive school to them because they get to stay in our league, which is is the league is their league of preference because we do get up to Boston. Obviously, we're coming up there this year. But at the same time, they get kind of into a better weather climate. So we're an attractive school for that reason. We're also a good academic school. I and mean, in general, the kids in, in the Northeast really value education. So they, they oftentimes make an academic decision when they're trying to figure out to do. But just from a player standpoint, the, the New England kids a lot of times play multiple sports, which we love because they can't play baseball year round up there. So they play football, they play basketball. And again, those athletes that cross train and do other things bring a toughness and a competitiveness to the game that that maybe those baseball only guys sometimes miss on. So, and it's cross training too. It also gives them a chance to rest and put the put the glove, the bat, and the ball down for stretches of time. And I think that keeps them healthier over over the long stretch as well. So, again, the academic component and the financial component too. Like up there, we're an expensive school, and up there, our price tag is not as scary as it is in some parts of the world. Yeah, I was talking to Coach Pollard on the podcast from Duke uh, a couple of months ago, and he was saying that the abundance of prep schools in New England, too, it fit, it's an academic fit, it's the financial fit. 
a lot of the things that you were saying. Uh, but in terms of playing baseball year round, um, that does seem to be picking up a little bit in New England because of all these indoor facilities and now all these traveling club programs offer opportunities for guys to continue to play through the winter and spring. But you said, you know, you're kind of prioritizing multi-sport athletes. Are there situations where you would ever recommend to somebody, no, like you don't have a winter sport or you don't have a, uh, a fall sport. Maybe it is in your best interest to kind of train year round as a baseball player. Or would you always encourage somebody, hey, go go play a different role in another sport. You don't have to be the best at anything. It's good to kind of accept different roles and learn how to grow as an athlete outside of the baseball field. Yeah, yeah, we really don't get involved in that decision. We leave that decision up to the kids. We we try not to push them one way or the other. I think that's a family decision for them um, that they need to make. Again, we we never discourage multi sports, but I wouldn't. I, we don't take it as far as to say, "Hey, you need to play another sport." So it, it really just kind of depends on the individual situation and the family. And then also with Wake Forest, you have, um, you know, you you said that you really stress high character players. Is there a way that you can vet that or what do you do to vet that? Are you contact reaching out to coaches, school administrators, parents? Like how how do you find out if you're getting the quality of player that you're looking for? Or quality yeah, really, of per, quality of, above, of person, I should say. Yeah, all of the above. I mean, we're reaching out to as many people as we can to to as thoroughly as we possibly can vet this recruit. Like we never offer somebody who hasn't been on our campus. Like we're not going to offer a young man that we haven't met him, met his parents. We don't understand what their value system is and, and, and what they're looking to get out of the college experience. So for us, and our, our assistant coaches do an unbelievable job of talking to these kids through the recruiting process. I mean, we, I think we spend more time on the phone with our recruits than really anybody else does, kind of building that relationship, getting to understand who they are. Because I think the one thing we've learned is if their personality doesn't jive with who we are as a coaching staff and who we are as a program, then it's not the right fit. And that's okay. That doesn't mean they're not a good player. It doesn't mean they can't go somewhere else and thrive. It just means that our program's not the right fit. So as we're looking, there's a lot of great players out there. And as we're looking at these kids, it's really a two-way street. They've got to be a match for us and we've got to be a match for them. And if if that happens then it usually works out if they've got some God-given talent, which obviously they do because we're talking to them. But the point of the matter is, is as we tell recruits all the time, like at some point during your college career, it's going to get hard. Like whether it's a personal situation or a baseball situation or an academic situation, it's going to get hard. And and if it's not getting hard, then you're not playing at a high enough level, quite honestly. But uh, when it gets hard, you need to know you're at the right place with the right people because then you get on the other side of that and you don't see that transfer portal activity continuing to climb. I think the, the the better kids can, the better decisions kids can make, I think it's going to limit people getting into the portal. Yeah, and we actually just did a story for our last recent magazine. I mean, we went over to Northeastern to talk to Coach Glavin about how he's getting so many freshmen. He had two freshman All-America selections last year, and he's getting those freshmen to come in. And he said that's typically the hardest part of your college experience, that freshman freshman fall where you're really trying to get your feet under you and trying to figure out like how am I going to manage really tough classes the academic workload has gotten more strenuous and then the baseball piece where you're playing more hours per day you're lifting harder than you ever have and all those pieces is there is there anything that you can do as a coaching staff to really help with that transition when guys are just kind of trying to keep their head above water in the freshman fall 
Yeah, we, we bring our guys in for summer school, truthfully. The second session of summer school, our freshmen come here. They take two classes. They work out with our strength coach every day. They've got their tutors aligned. So it really it starts about July 6th every year where they show up and they're here for about five weeks. They go home usually about August 8th or 10th, kind of right in that range. And they have a couple of weeks before they go back. But it's really a great kind of segue into their college. Not only does it get them six credit hours ahead, but it gets them a chance to bond with each other, gets them a chance to figure out what life as a college student is going to be without the grind of daily practice and without the grind of a full load of classes. So it's really been for us, that summer program that we have has really made a big difference. Which, first of all, sorry about that. I'm not usually a technologically uh, literate, but, but apparently today was my day for that. I, I wanted to ask you about what you feel like the differences in your teams that you've had great teams over the years, some that, that make it and of course get to, to Omaha and some that come up a little bit short. I'm wondering how much do you feel like over the years some of that's been locked? And I mean that just like injuries and what have you. And sometimes what is the separating quality in those teams that have gotten there? Well, it's a little bit luck for sure. I mean, injuries play a big part of it. We had a bunch of injuries last year that we were, thankfully, we were deep enough to sustain. Nick Hurts, who's arguably our best hitter last year, along with Brock Wilkin, was out for six weeks. Adam Ciceri, our starting left fielder, was out for a while. Sean Sullivan, guy in our rotation, was out for a few weeks. So we had injuries last year, but we were deep enough to overcome them and, and kind of stay the, kind of stay the course. But so injuries are a big part and that, that's a little bit lucky. And when you get into the postseason, it's a little bit luck too. You got to get a bounce here or a bounce there in a tight game. Something's got to kind of break your way. We had a, a game against Alabama. That first game against Alabama could have gone either way. We got a, a big call in our favor and ended up capitalizing on it. And ended up I'm not saying we wouldn't have won the game anyway, but it was a it was a huge momentum shift in that in that game. And who knows, if you lose the first game of the Super, who knows what happens after that. But point of the matter is, is so certainly luck is a little bit, but you know, as as far as the difference for me, there's two parts to the difference. One, you gotta have horses. Like you gotta have to get to Omaha, you gotta have big leaguers. Like we we say all the time, it's like you're not gonna get to Omaha with doctors and lawyers. You're gonna get to Omaha with major leaguers. So you got to have some star power on your team, which we we certainly had last year and we certainly do again this year. But the team chemistry and the team culture is is the second piece to that, I would say, is the difference maker. Like you look at our teams in like 2016, 17 that were so good and even in 2022 was so good. And those guys really cared about one another and, and they put the emphasis on their relationship with one another and, and then how they showed up each and every day with their energy and their attitude it makes a big difference. You mentioned Sean Sullivan as a transfer from Massachusetts, who was a big part of your uh, team last year and had a you know, part of the starting rotation, in fact. And he was a transfer after his freshman year at Northwestern. And I was wondering, it seems that coaches are kind of using the transfer portal differently. I know there's some state schools in New England where they're kind of bringing guys back who might have gone to Big Ten schools or SEC or ACC schools, and they didn't get as much of a chance to contribute there. And they're saying, hey, we can help you out in terms of tuition here, just because it's an in-state university. So that's kind of how they're using the transfer portal. Uh, I know UConn coach Jim Penders has said, this guy just killed us for a weekend series last year in the beginning of the year, and he popped up in the transfer portal, so we brought him in because we knew he could contribute to our team immediately. Uh, whereas I, I mentioned we had uh, Chris Pollard on, and he said with the academic standards at these AC, high-end ACC schools, you almost have to rec uh, get guys through the transfer portal that you've recruited out of high school. You have to be familiar with their academic makeup. 
or what are you finding in terms of how you're doing your recruiting through the transfer portal, if at all? Yeah, I'm, I hate to say it. It'll probably hurt your, your podcast viewership, but I'm a Yankee fan. And, but I, I, oh. I like it. Understood. Understood. I compare it to the when the Yankees were good. And as you guys know, and you're, and you're happy, you're gloating about, it. we haven't been good in a while. As that, yeah, when I say we, I mean us Yankee fans, we haven't had anything to cheer for in a while. And when I look at the really good Yankee teams, they were, they were homegrown, like their talent, Posada and, and Jeter and Rivera and Pettit and Bernie Williams, like the, the crux of their team was homegrown talent, guys that understood the Yankee way, that took pride in the Yankee way. And then they filled in around that with role players, the Scott Brocious's and the Paul O'Neill's. And, and then they pick up a, a pitcher, a star pitcher here, Roger Clemens or somebody like that, obviously, too. But point of the matter is, that's how I look at the transfer portal. Like, we want the, the bulk of our team to be homegrown because, again, they, they got recruited here to our vision and our values, and their vision and values were aligned with ours, and it was a great fit. So they're going to come in here and be loyal to Wake Forest. They're going to compete for Wake Forest. I think sometimes when kids make decisions in the, trans, in the transfer portals, they're making a, a strictly transactional decision. They're making a decision based on, either finances or playing time. And those are transactions. And when you make a transactional decision, you just don't have as much invested in the success of that program. You're more looking at the success of yourself. So one of the things that was great about Sully last year is he really invested into this team and became a, a, a really critical part, a critical cog of our team culture. He was somebody that that became a leader in our program. And that's why he went in the second round and and sign where he did, and and he's going to find himself in the big leagues. But point is, is when we when we bring somebody in from the portal, we need to make sure that that they're going to fit into our team culture first and foremost. I have a pretty good relationship with with Gavin Sheets, who of course used to play first base for you at Wake Forest. I remember Gavin got drafted in the middle of your guys' rain delay, I believe, in the in the Florida Super Regional back when the draft was in the beginning of July. I'm curious your perspective on the draft getting pushed back to the middle of middle to the middle of July now well after the college season is over? And do you feel like it's had any sort of impact uh, on your players, even from a psychological mental standpoint? Yeah, it's such a tough call because there's, there's, to your point, there's there's really no great time to have it because if you have it when they historically had it, then you got kids that are in the postseason worried about the draft. If you have it where you have it now, your scholarships are due July 1st and, and the draft is not till July 11th. So we're, we're trying to figure out what our 11.7 is going to look like. And we don't even know who we're going to lose to the draft. So it creates problems, the draft being where it is. I, I don't like where it is now. Um, I wasn't crazy about where it was before either. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, again, I, yeah. That's a great question because I, I don't have a good solution. I think if there was an easy solution, we'd probably have it already locked in somewhere. But I don't like where it is now because, again, if you lose somebody unexpectedly in the draft, whether it's a high school player or a draft-eligible sophomore, then you really have no way to replace that person. So what it forces coaches to do is oversign to account for those unexpected losses and then all of a sudden, that's why you see in the middle of July, coaches calling kids and saying, you can't come here. We don't have your scholarship. Now, we haven't done that here at Wake Forest, but it goes on. Like it's happening in SEC and ACC schools year in, year out because of this dilemma that they're in. Hmm, that's crazy. Coach, this is a story that you've probably told a million times, but when I was um, doing some research for our podcast, I found the story and I don't think our audience would be familiar with it. So I do want to share it. 
Back in 2010, you recruited a player, Kevin Jordan, who needed a, he had a kidney disease and needed a transplant and none of his family members were a match. Uh, you volunteered to be tested and offered one of your kidneys uh, when he found out that you were a suitable donor. That transplant took place on February 7th, 2011, which is just an amazing story. I wanted to get kind of into the mindset of, uh, you said your team is a family, and so you treated it like a family member. But what kind of went into the decision when you're weighing that, when you're thinking about my quality of life could be impacted? I don't know. There might have been a chance you don't even come out of that surgery. What what were kind of the factors that you weighed to do that? And how, what is your relationship like now with Kevin? Yeah, thanks, Dan, for the question. So at the time, I volunteered to be tested. Quite honestly, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the surgery entailed. I didn't know the risks of the surgery. I didn't know what life after the surgery would look like. I just saw a young man who needed my help. And like, like any one of our coaches would do for any one of our players, if, if you have the ability to help, then, then you're going to do that, especially when it's something like this. I mean, people talk about my courage in this story, but the courage in the story is Kevin Jordan. I mean, Kevin moved from Vienna, Georgia, small town in Georgia, when he's fighting for his life, he's on full-time dialysis, and he moved to Winston-Salem and bet on us. He took a chance coming here. He could have stayed at home and stayed with the doctors he was with and, and just kind of tried to try to solve the issue there. But he came to campus. And when our, when our guys, I have a saying that I, that I share with our team all the time too, much is given, much is required. And our players give us a lot. And that, that requires a lot from us as coaches to give back. So when I had the chance to help, I just stepped to the plate and, and said I would do it. And then I kind of figured it out later. Like coaches often do, right? We, we make them so that we figure it out later. <laughs> Has it affected the quality of your life at all? Or have you had any, any, any follow-up appointments or anything as a result of it? Yeah, I have to get a yearly physical just, just to make sure everything's good. But now, I mean, my health has been, my health has been relatively good. I mean, I probably don't eat as healthy as I should or drink as much water as I should, but, but otherwise, yeah, this hasn't, it hasn't stopped me from doing anything that, that I want to do. And, and Kevin's health is great too. Kevin and I started a nonprofit together a few years ago called Get in the Game, where we're taking our story into the communities and kind of sharing our story of shared blood. One of the, one of the things happened when this story originally broke, nobody talked about the race part of the story. Nobody talked about the fact that I was white and Kevin was black. But I can tell you that in the, in the black community, it was a big deal like this story because it was unexpected and it's sad that it's unexpected, but in that, in, in, in that community, it was, it was surprising. And so it, it wasn't talked about because again, I think that's one of the problems with race in the, in the world today is we just don't talk about it enough. We don't have conversation about it. We don't, we're not intentional about dealing with race. We try to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. And and that's what our nonprofit does. We go into the schools, we tell our story, we talk about shared blood. My blood and his blood are the same, and that's all that matters. And we're and we're in this together. So and then we deliver lessons on leadership and and help these kids kind of understand how to who they are and and what they stand for, and and hopefully go into the world and and choose a life of service over self. I feel like now again, like Dan mentioned, NIL transfer portal, kind of the changing landscape of, of college sports. I think maybe from the outside viewer kind of the importance of, of, of that team culture you mentioned earlier. I think some people have felt as though that maybe there's less of an emphasis now on college, on that in college sports. Maybe college coaches um, aren't placing the the impact um, that a relationship can have with their players or just kind of shopping, pissing it out and, and whatever it might be. What's your take on the notion if, if people have a negative 
um, perspective on how college sports have changed or or just how do you feel like it's changed on the inside um, in terms of the relationship that you can have with players knowing that there's so much turnover potentially on a year-in-year-out basis? Yeah, I would say that people who feel that way, there's some credibility to that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, this pay-for-play model that we're in in football and basketball and, and now even baseball, and it's filtering down into track and field and soccer and golf too. So I, that model is a is a dangerous landscape because what it does is it sends the wrong messages to your athletes. It says that that they go from this. We're always talking, my generation especially, right? We always talk about this earned versus entitled mentality. And and in our program, we want players who who are trying to earn it every single day. And same thing with our coaching staff, just having that growth mindset that we're going to earn it, that we're not entitled to anything, we don't deserve anything. It's not about that. It's about who we are and 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 what we stand for. Like I said, with our nonprofit. But the point is, is like for us, like I, I'm very like open and honest with our players about NIL money and and how we use it. I, I tell them, like NIL money, scholarship money, financial aid. Right, those are our three buckets of money. And we pull money, and a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. So I don't care if you're on financial aid or scholarship money or NIL money. I look at that money the same. So. Again, and it's my job to, that money is our number one asset on, on how we build a program and a roster. So how we use that money and build an Omaha caliber team, but it also be fair and also be open and transparent about how we're using that money and why we're using it in the way we are. I think it's, it's super important because again, at the end of the day, our guys have to want to be around one another. I tell our guys all the time, like the number one thing I care about is you as a human being, like you leaving here a better human being, prepared for life. The number two thing I care about is your relationship with each other. Like I care about that more than I care about winning. I care about that more than I care about your your development as a baseball player. I care about that more than I care about your academics. That doesn't mean I don't care about those three things. It just means that I care about their relationship with each other. After them being a great human being, I care about their relationship with each other next. Yeah, that's a good priority to have. I wanted to ask about, I, I mentioned that you're familiar with BC, obviously, from competing with them in the ACC, and that BC is a team we follow pretty closely up here. It surprised me that Coach Gambino obviously had a great season last year with BC, that the Penn State job was more desirable for him. I, I wouldn't think of the Big Ten as a baseball conference. I mean, I know there are really good programs in the Big Ten, but the fact that he left BC to go to Penn State was a surprise to me. Was it was that something that you could have seen coming? I think it was a family decision more than anything else, quite honestly. I mean, he he, he did a great job at BC, obviously. He had them in a regional this year and, and one game away from a super regional. They, if they had beaten Alabama, they would have come here for the super regional. So they had a, a really good club, and, and he's had that, that club on a national stage many times over the last few years. And, and they built a great facility while he was there. I mean, nobody thought they could get the facility built that they got done, and and Mike was a huge part of that. So I know he loved his time at BC and I know it was hard for him to leave, but you know, I, I think quite honestly, it was just a, a quality of life family decision. I think Mike was living quite a, quite a bit away from Boston college because it's so expensive to live there near campus in that hour plus a day and in the car every day. I think that just kind of wears on you over time. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know all that for sure, but I'm guessing that was a big part of the decision. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about Todd Interdonato? I know he coached down your way. Did you, do you have a relationship with him at all? Yeah, we played them this past year. We played Wofford and, and he's got a, he's got a, his teams compete really well. They're tough. They, they play hard. They play together. 
but they they value it's it'll be interesting to see how how his style of play holds up in the ACC because it's different from anybody else in our league. They bunt a lot. They use the backside of the field more. They're not a they're not a big other than the one guy they had in their lineup this past year. They're not a huge home run hitting team. And 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 I, I don't know if he's going to take that same offensive philosophy with the Boston College or now that he he's recruiting a different type of player that will change. I guess time will will tell on that, but. He really got the most out of his guys at Wadford. So I thought it was a really good hire by the Boston College folks. Coach, I'm curious if you're ever able to to kind of sit back ever during the game, especially in the big games that you've played and kind of appreciate, or is that something that's more reflective, right? Like playing LSU in Omaha and, and of course, that, that terrific game that you guys played against them that went 11 innings with, with pretty much pro ball, as you said earlier, pro ball talent pretty much all over the field. And, and you guys have had plenty of instances like that over the years. Is it, do, you, do you ever get the opportunity I guess, to soak in and, and enjoy the moments that you've had as a coach, or is that something that's going to come after you're done coaching? Yeah, what a great question. I, I think it'll probably come after I'm done coaching, but certainly didn't come this year. Right when we landed, coming back from Omaha, we were like in the transfer portal trying to trying to fill a couple of needs. We knew we were going to get crushed in the draft, which is to be expected when you have a great team. So we had to go out and get a couple of key pieces in the draft or in the, in the port. So from the moment we hit the ground uh, from Omaha, we were we were kind of focused on the transfer portal and who we bringing in as as pieces to help us get back there. So for this year, especially, I could say that I don't think anybody on our staff had time to kind of sit back and reflect at just how special last season was. Coach, you're you're good with hanging in for about five minutes for three up, three down. Yeah, sure. All right, nice. This is our producer David Yaz who will introduce the segment. Three up, three down. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Three Up, Three Down, where I give three questions to both of our co-hosts and our guest. Coach, since you're the guest, you get to go first. Here's the first question. If you've got one game to win, Game 7 of the World Series, all the chips are down, who's your starting pitcher, past or present, living or dead? Well, if that's a college game, Hey, Rhett Louder. Rhett is Rhett went fifteen and zero for us this past season. I mean, what an unbelievable competitor and gamer he was. As far as in the major leagues, my one go-to guy, man. Again, like I told you, I'm a Yankee fan, so I'm going to go with like Andy Pettit. Seemed like he always pitched really good in those big games and just found a way to win. Was just a winner. So I I go with the guy who finds a way to win. El Duque is another guy that comes to mind. He mm. just found a way in the postseason to get it done for the Yankees. Is that pre-medication Andy Pettit or post? Oh, never mind. Never mind. We're, we're, we're not, we don't want to go there. Good. Excellent answers. Dan, how about you? I was not expecting to pay Kurt Schilling a compliment on this podcast, wow. <laughs> but I will probably go with Kurt Schilling. He, he was lights out in the postseason. Just, I, I don't know. I know the numbers are right there with anybody. Josh Beckett had a few really dominant postseasons too, but I probably go Schilling. It's a good pick, the bloody sock man. Matt? Well, I can coach if I had a college player. I'd probably go Danny Holson, who won a great college World Series run. I think he had the record for single-game strikeout, at least at one point. I don't, know if he, I don't know if he still does in, in Omaha. If I had a postseason pitcher in the big league, I'd probably go John Lester. Hmm, interesting. We got, we got a couple lefties in the mix here. Actually, we got all three of you picked lefties, now that I think about it. Wow, how about that? All right, question number two. If you had a time machine and you could go back to any baseball game in history, any historic moment you want to go to witness, what would you pick? 
Matt Feld, why don't we start with you? Well, I'll go to the the Yankees-Diamondbacks game where George W. Bush, after 9-11, threw out the first pitch in the world. Seminal moment. The sentimental pick. Nice one. Yep. Dan, how about you? Probably 1980 Phillies winning the World Series. That was huge for the... Your boys. Yeah, I've always been a Phillies fan. And that one was probably a little bit better. Like 2000, they won with... I was in 2008 or 2009. They won again. Uh, we can look that up. Yeah. Oh. But that, I think just because there was a longer uh, time period between before that 1980 championship, I think that would probably be a bigger one to be in attendance at. It was 2008. Yeah, 2008. Coach, how about you? So I have a, I have a two-part answer. Mm-hmm. And part one is if I could take my dad with me to the game, I'd pick the Bill Mazeroski hold and run. Mm-hmm. In 1960, Bill Mazeroski was my dad's favorite player. And it'd be really cool to be at that game with my dad. But, but, if I but you're, by- you're a Yankee fan, coach. The ultimate Yankee heartbreak. Well, not the ultimate Yankee heartbreak, but. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pirate fan, too. Okay. And, and most importantly, just a fan of my dad. But, but if, if I had to go by myself, I would probably pick the game where Aaron Boone homered off the foul pole against Tim Wake. He had to do it. He had, he had, <laughs> he had to do it to us. And, and again, rest in peace, Tim. What an unbelievable human being. And, and talk about a competitor and a gamer. And he, he, he is missed. Even as a Yankee fan, Tim Wakefield is missed. Well, Coach won because he just put a dagger in the hearts of Red Sox fans and invoked father-son baseball nostalgia. It's the Field of Dreams answer. Excellent answers. But we will go to one more question, and we will start with you. Let's see. We'll start with the coach on this one. So bear with me. This is an out-of-the-box question, a very brief story I'm going to tell, which some of you may know. In July, on July 4th, 1985, the Mets played a crazy game. The Mets and Braves played a crazy game. It went into the 18th inning. The Mets took the lead 11-10 in the top of the 18th. In the bottom of the inning, with two outs, the Braves, out of players, sent pitcher Rick Camp to the plate. With an 0-2 count, you probably know what happened. Rick Camp hit his only home run of his career to tie the game. He later lost the game and struck out to end the game. But we don't remember that part. Here's the, <laughs> quest, here's the question. Can you match that? What is the most unlikely or improbable thing you've ever witnessed or even just heard about at any level of baseball, any crazy moments or stories like that? Coach, you can pass if you want to. This is kind of a tough one. (laughs) I might need need 30 seconds to think about that. So, yeah, I'll I'll pass for now, but hopefully I'll I'll come up with something. All right, we'll swing back to you. Dan, you got one? Yeah, I'll give you one. Oh. I was on a my nine-year-old Little League team. I ended up winning a state championship. And not a state championship, just a, my Little League championship. The, but right, anyway. The town championship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, we had one kid on the team who did not get a single hit for the entire season. Uh, and it was not like he's lining out or hitting hard grounders in the hole and he's getting robbed. This is just like three strikes. You're 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 down. Sit on the bench. And he just struggled all season. Coaches were working with him all the time, extra like, hey, let's let's step into the pitch, watch the ball all the way to the bat. Tons of extra coaching for him. In our championship game, we got down. It was a sixth inning game. We were winning the game anyway, but he got up in the sixth inning, had a single. Wow. Just hit a, yeah, and we just went nuts because we were like, never could have predicted that would happen. In our state championship, or not, I keep saying state championship. I'm trying to give myself too much credit here. Your little league, rec, yeah. your little rec league championship, which at, <laughs> yeah. the, at the time probably felt like the World Series. Yeah, exactly. We I, won the World Championship. I love stories like that. I Similar, maybe around the same time in my youth, I played with a kid named Josh Koblowski who who couldn't hit. 
couldn't catch, couldn't do anything. And one game came down to last minute. A guy hit a, the opposing team hit a fly ball to left field, two outs. We need one out left, but it's going out to Josh. And we're like, forget it. He caught it. And the ball, I can still see the ball escaping his glove, like it, it snow cone fashion, but it held. And uh, Josh won the game. So I, I just, you never forget those things. Yeah. Coach, we'll give you a little more time. I'll go to Matt. Matt, you got one? Uh, yeah, I don't know why this came to mind. I, I'm sure I've seen something more improbable on, on a baseball field. I had a really good friend who was a big White Sox fan. We were watching the five World Series between the White Sox and Astros. Scott Pesednik and now hit a home run the entire year and hit a walk-off home run in game two against the Houston Astros. And he obviously went went ballistic. I don't know why I thought of that moment. I'm sure I could think of something more unlikely, but I remember that was pretty pretty busy. You know what? No one runs in like 700 bats the entire season and had a walk-off home run in game two of the World Series. That's a great one. I seem to remember Pesednik homering off the Red Sox in one, pos- one postseason also. Um, yes. Yeah. And, I think the year before, year after. Yeah. Yeah. With the White Sox in a series where El Duque frustrated us in game three. So thanks a lot for bringing <laughs> up that memory, Coach. And Coach, do you have a improbable or odd memory of uh, the sport of baseball? Yeah, I, I still can't come. I have one in football. Can I share that? Yeah, sure. We love all so, sports. I was at the game. I was coaching at the University of New Orleans, and I was coaching at I was I was there during Hurricane Katrina, and I was at the Saints game when when they beat the Falcons in the game where they came back to the dome. They played that season prior at, at LSU. They played their home games at the LSU Tiger Stadium, and then the the next year they came back to the dome for the first time. We're playing the Falcons, and the Falcons went three and out, and the Saints blocked the punt. Um, Gleason blocked the punt. He has a statue outside of um, mm. outside of the stadium now, and he's he's actually uh, got ALS. And um, so so anyway, but I was at that game, and in that moment, it was the like you've heard people say the saying so loud you can't hear yourself think. Mm. And until you're in that dome in that moment, you don't understand what that saying means. Mm. And like in that moment, it was so loud you couldn't pull a thought together. It was crazy. Like, I just remember sitting there and the noise penetrated your brain to, to the depths that you couldn't, you couldn't think you really, truly. And again, unless you've been, and, and I, it was just a really cool moment and a really cool moment for the city of New Orleans. Yeah. After everything that happened to New Orleans during Katrina, of course, it, it was one of these, those cosmic moments where you think maybe there is some higher being you scripting this thing, because how could you script it any better than that? And the Saints went on well, to win that game in a landslide, I think. They did. And and if, if a baseball moment that was brought up by Matt, like I was at the game where George Bush threw out that first pitch. Mm. And and as Matt alluded to, it was the first game after 9-11. And it, what a powerful moment that was for our country. And, and just I just remember going to that game and they they told everybody, like, look, get there really early because security is going to be obviously through the roof. And it took you more than an hour to get into the stadium. And then when George Bruce threw out that first pitch, I mean, just just electric, really electric. And maybe appropriate to bring up this season because George W. threw out the pitch, one of the games of the World Series, I think. Yeah, he did. For the Rangers. For the Rangers. I think he was a part owner of that team. Of course, yeah, yeah, he was. And maybe that was the magic ingredient and put them over the top. Anyway, you all have done tremendous in three up, three down. I have uh, some big league chew to send you and enjoy the, the rest of the day, guys. And now, Dan, back to you. Thank you. Thanks to Coach Tom Walter for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. <laughs>